Hello, and welcome to the Clinical Care Options Oncology Podcast. I'm your host, Tim Quill. Today's episode features Dr. Julie Vose from the University of Nebraska Medical Center in Omaha, Nebraska, Dr. Brad Call from the Washington University School of Medicine in St. Louis, Missouri, and Dr. John Leonard from Weill Cornell Medicine in New York. In this episode, they will summarize key highlights from a recent symposium on the optimal management of patients with B-cell lymphomas that was held during the annual hematology meeting in 2021. This episode is part of a larger educational program titled A Class in Session, Understanding Current and Future Therapeutic Advances Across B-Cell Lymphomas. For more information on the experts, along with a link to the complete program, including downloadable slide sets, expert commentaries, and an on-demand webcast from the live event, please visit the show notes for this episode. Now let's get started and hear what the experts have to say. Great. Well, thank you very much. And uh, it's a great pleasure to be here. And thank you all for joining us. So we'll now get into how we approach follicular lymphoma. So the first question that comes up all the time is, well, what's my prognosis for patient with newly diagnosed follicular lymphoma? The most commonly applied standard, at least uh, clinically, to be able to sort this out is the flippy, but it's really amount of disease, LDH, stage, age, and hemoglobin. We don't necessarily treat patients differently based on their flippy or at least solely based on their flippy, but this is uh, very useful in kind of assessing where this patient fits on the spectrum. The M7 flippy is a version of the flippy that is modified by looking at several different mutational status. Now that some patients uh, and some centers are doing mutational profiling, I'm the most Relevant of these might be the EZH2 mutations, which is seen somewhere in the range of about 10% of patients, uh, is associated with a more favorable outcome in general. So my approach to patients with low tumor burden, advanced stage follicular lymphoma is that watch and wait is certainly reasonable. And I would say for most patients, encouraged. So you give things a little time to get a feel for how the disease is going to go. If they need therapy and have low tumor burden, I typically use rituximab weekly times four. Obviously, short-term toxicity for chemoimmunotherapy, for example, versus long-term disease-free interval, and balancing that out uh, might be preferred by some patients, although I think the majority of patients capable of watch and wait or in a watch and wait situation usually opt for something less aggressive in most cases. So for higher tumor burden, advanced stage FL patients, I would say that uh, Arbenda is what I tend to use most commonly. Our chop is reasonable, but uh, I tend to avoid the toxicity of our chop if there's no good reason to use it. However, if I'm worried about transformation, I will use our chop. And again, maintenance for tuximab I think is of limited value because there's no overall survival benefit. So I don't routinely use maintenance here, but I consider it and discuss it with my patients. I think lenalidomide rituximab is of limited value. It might, an occasional patient, be something the patient wants to pursue, but is usually not my uh, standard therapy. And I would say that obinutuzumab is reasonable to use, but it's not routine for me. You don't have the subcutaneous option. You're going to use maintenance if you follow the gallium data. And uh, also, for many of us in our practice, we're using biosimilars, uh, and you don't have that option uh, here. So again, it's a reasonable approach, but not something I typically do, uh, but certainly not wrong. The area that gets a lot of attention in relapsed follicular lymphoma is the group of patients that progress within two years of diagnosis. 
Those uh, who progress after two years of from initial therapy, I should say, really uh, do quite well and have essentially a normal overall survival. But the 20% of patients that progress have a less favorable outcome, and that's a group of patients that we obviously would like to do better with. If you have a patient progressing within two years, you really should think about biopsying or looking for transformation because about half of those patients will. When you look at 10 years of follow-up, about 30% of patients have transformed disease. So we have a number of agents in recurrent follicular lymphoma. You could give rituximab again, an obinutuzumab combination, radioimmunotherapy, which is a great treatment that hardly ever, if ever, gets used these days, lenalidomide rituximab, PI3 kinase inhibitors, EZH2 inhibitors, and then more intensive approaches like stem cell transplant and more recently CAR T-cell therapy has come in the choices. And then finally, the bite and the bispecific antibodies, mosinituzumab, glofitimab, odronextimab, and epcarinumab. So they're basically binding the tumor with the CD20 moiety and a T-cell in vivo with the CD3 moiety. These are very exciting across the spectrum of B-cell malignancies. Okay, uh, what ongoing trials are you most excited to see in follicular lymphoma? Mm, that's a good question. Uh, that's my hardest question. When I see a patient who relapsed five years later, you know, we can do pretty much whatever, and that patient is likely to do well if they haven't transformed. And so that gets into the patient's preferences. But my biggest question is, if I have that early progressing patient, you know, is that someone I should rush to go to CAR T-cell with or to auto-transplant with? Should I give them more therapy? Should I give them one of these other agents? So I think that's a really important practical question that probably is going to influence long-term outcomes because that's the patient, group of patients where there are more problems. Other studies that are of interest, I think we're probably going to see more and more of these new agents, such as the bispecifics used earlier in the course of the disease. And I think it'll be very interesting for these immune-based treatments where things are going. The biggest practical problem, as I'm sure you all know, with your follicular lymphoma patients is the COVID issues and, and the risk of COVID. I think that dominates these patients because many of them have had rituximab or obinutuzumab. They may have had bendamustine. And, you know, navigating that is really, I think, the biggest challenge we all face from the practical standpoint right now. So, Dr. Call, Brad, how, how excited are you about the bispecific class of agents for follicular lymphoma specifically? I'm very excited about bispecifics and follicular lymphoma. Um, when you look at the efficacy, they look most potent in follicular lymphoma, more so than diffuse large B-cell lymphoma or mantle or other lymphomas. How good they can be and will they replace standard therapies remains to be determined but so far, follicular lymphoma is where bispecifics are showing the most activity. Yeah. One last question. I'm going to ask uh, Brad, too. Um, do you use a tazemetostat in patients who do not have the EZH2 mutation? I will. It's an extremely well-tolerated agent, as you know, Julie. And so even though the response rates are not as high because of its very nice safety profile, I, I still will offer it to patients who have an unmutated EZH2 gene. Thank you. So I think we're going to go on to the next portion. There'll be lots of time later. We can um, answer some other questions as well. So Dr. Call is going to talk to us about marginal zone lymphoma and mantle cell lymphoma and what's new in those types of lymphomas. So take it away, Brad. Thanks, Julie. Uh, what I wanted to cover today were new developments in marginal zone lymphoma and mantle cell lymphoma that have occurred over the past year heading into the 2021 American Society of Hematology meeting. 
So let's start with marginal zone lymphoma. As you know, this is a, it's a group of related diseases. There are three distinct subtypes, splenic marginal zone lymphoma, nodal marginal zone lymphoma, and extranodal marginal zone lymphoma, more commonly referred to as malt lymphoma. Of these, malt is the most common and nodal is the least common. And typically we think of the splenic version and the nodal version, version as systemic diseases, whereas malt lymphoma is more likely to present as a localized disease, although you can get a fraction of cases that present as a systemic disease. So um, let's talk about how we manage uh, marginal zone lymphoma broadly. In the frontline setting, you certainly will see patients come into your clinic who are asymptomatic, whose disease was found incidentally, and they have a low tumor burden, and those patients certainly can be considered for a watch and wait strategy. If you do have patients requiring therapy, then I think it's most useful to think about the different types of marginal zone lymphoma. So let's talk about the malt type first. Certainly, you'll see cases that are the H. pylori positive gastric malt variety. And for those patients, typically antibiotics are the most appropriate frontline therapy. But um, if the case is H. pylori negative, or if it's a, a non-gastric malt that's localized, then then involved field radiation is typically the most effective therapy. And then if you do have a patient who has advanced stage malt lymphoma requiring therapy, then you could consider single agent rituximab, which has modest activity, but obviously low toxicity. More effective typically would be some sort of rituximab chemotherapy combination, such as the bendamustine rituximab regimen. For splenic marginal zone lymphoma, Splenectomy is very effective, and we used to do it very routinely, but in the last 10 or so years, we've really learned how amazingly effective single-agent rituximab is in splenic marginal zone lymphoma, and so I think a lot of us are more likely to use that modality now. And then for advanced stage nodal disease requiring therapy, typically rituximab plus chemotherapy, most often bendamustine rituximab. So let's look at some of the options for relapsed refractory marginal zone lymphoma. On the left, I've listed what I'm calling established therapies. Certainly one could administer rituximab or obinutuzumab or R-chemo or O-chemo. Uh, radiation can be very useful and even radioimmunotherapy could be useful. And in the right, I've listed some targeted therapies, including some options fairly recently improved, including lenalidomide rituximab abrutinib, xanabrutinib, and umbrilisib. And then I just wanted to mention some investigational agents. There are three investigational PI3 kinase inhibitors, parsiclisib, copanlisib, and zandalisib being actively studied in marginal zone lymphoma. And we have a little bit of data for CAR-T in marginal zone lymphoma. So let's talk about BTK inhibition in marginal zone lymphoma. The first agent that was made available was abrutinib. This is an oral BTK inhibitor, and we know it's very active in CLL and SLL, and it's moderately active in mantle cell lymphoma, but not terribly active in follicular lymphoma. So more recently, we've had the approval of xanabrutinib, a so-called second-generation BTK inhibitor in marginal zone lymphoma, and this was based on this trial called Magnolia. So just to summarize, for marginal zone lymphoma, before we move on to mantle cell lymphoma, Frontline management, watch and wait is appropriate for low tumor burden asymptomatic patients. If patients are requiring treatment for localized malt, usually radiation is your best option. For extensive disease, usually bendamustine rituximab is your best option. There may be cases where single agent rituximab makes more sense based upon the patient's comorbidities and frailties. 
For splenic marginal zone lymphoma, single agent rituximab works uniquely well in this setting as probably the therapy of choice here. And for high tumor burden nodal disease, I think bendamustine rituximab is probably the best option. In the relapse setting, we have a number of established therapies, including rituximab, radiation, and our chemo, but we do have these novel agents, which I spent most of my time highlighting today with very promising data for lenalidomide, rituximab, abrutinib, xanabrutinib, and umbrilisib, and emerging promising data for three different uh, investigational PI3 kinase inhibitors. So I'm going to move forward now and uh, finish up by talking about what was new in 2021 in mantle cell lymphoma. And there wasn't quite as much new in mantle cell lymphoma this year as there had been in the past couple of years. So just to refresh your memory on mantle cell lymphoma, it has these unique clinical features. It's much more common in men with a median age right around 65. Uh, the vast majority of patients are diagnosed with advanced stage disease. A minority of patients will have high LDH and B symptoms. Central nervous system involvement is very uncommon at diagnosis. It's generally regarded as aggressive and incurable, although about 20% of patients do come in with quite an indolent presentation. So there was really no new data on the management of young patients. Uh, intensive type therapies have been established really as a standard of care. So some sort of high-dose cytotherapy containing induction, followed by autologous stem cell transplantation and first remission followed by maintenance rituximab is really the standard, and there was nothing to change that this year. However, there are many mantle cell patients who are not appropriate for such intensive approaches. So I wanted to summarize what we know about the non-intensive regimens for the older mantle cell patients for frontline therapy and the VR cap regimen. So that's certainly a reasonable option. In my own practice, I've tended to use the bendamustine rituximab regimen for the past 10 plus years. Certainly, there's this promising regimen from Italy called RBAC, and it is a, a very active regimen, but it is also very myelosuppressive. So I've tended to reserve RBAC for my older patients with very highly proliferative disease, say KI67 over 50%, where BR doesn't perform as well. But we have known for a long time that maintenance rituximab is very potent and very powerful in mantle cell lymphoma. And then presented at the Lugano uh, meetings this summer was a really interesting data set. And so looking at real-world data, we can see how BR performs better than RCHOP for time-to-next treatment, a really big benefit for maintenance rituximab after BR-based therapy. And it turns out that whether patients received RCHOP or BR as induction maintenance rituximab translated into an overall survival benefit in this retrospective chart review analysis. So again, not a randomized clinical trial, but really, I think, strong evidence for the benefit of maintenance rituximab in frontline mantle cell lymphoma use, including patients who receive bendamustine rituximab induction therapy. So in relapse refractory mantle cell lymphoma, the FDA-approved options, so bortezomib, modest activity, single-agent lenalidomide, modest activity. Certainly, the activity seems to improve when rituximab is added to lenalidomide. We have the three BTK inhibitors, abrutinib, acalabrutinib, and xanabrutinib, which all seem to generate response rates in the 70 to 80% range with pretty good durability in the 18-month range, certainly not as good as we see in CLL. And there's definitely room for improvement there. 
which is why I wanted to mention the possibility of BTK combinations. One is a brutinib plus venetoclax, and then a three-drug combination, a brutinib, venetoclax plus the anti-CD20 obinutuzumab. So trying to look into the future for relapsed mantle cell lymphoma, there is an important ongoing phase three trial called Sympatico, which is comparing abrutinib to abrutinib plus venetoclax. And so we'll be anxious to see those results when it's mature. And then I listed three ongoing phase two combination trials, abrutinib plus a proteasome inhibitor, abrutinib plus PI3 kinase inhibitor, and a Brutinib plus a CDK inhibitor. And so it'll be very interesting to see how these um, BTK combination trials look. Another really interesting and exciting development, which could make an impact in mantle cell lymphoma, is the so-called third-generation BTK inhibitor, pertubrutinib. This is a so-called non-covalent BTK inhibitor. And there was a large phase one, two trial done in a variety of histologies that included mantle cell lymphoma. Just want to finish up by um, reminding you of the Zuma 2 data. This is the data for Brexacaptogene autolucil, which is a CAR T product specifically for mantle cell lymphoma. Uh, this trial was completed and published in the New England Journal of Medicine. Certainly, this treatment isn't for everyone. There's a modest amount of toxicity, particularly in the form of cytokine release syndrome, which is expected in common, and um, a fair bit of neurologic toxicity, including 31% having grade three neurotox. Fortunately, most of it is reversible, but it's still very debilitating and distressing when it does happen. And so um, there will be mantle cell lymphoma patients who just end up not being appropriate for CAR T cell therapy. And there are mantle cell patients who relapse after CAR T cell therapy. So there's still you know, remain significant unmet needs in the relapsed mantle cell space. But I think we've seen really tremendous improvement in the treatment options for mantle cell lymphoma in the relapse space with BTK inhibitors showing good response rates and, and tolerability. We need to improve the durability, which is why there's a lot of BTK inhibitor combination studies. I do believe CAR-T represents a major advance, and I'm anxious to see the longer-term follow-up. I'm anxious to see novel CAR-T products applied in this patient population to see if we can improve on the tolerability. I think this has the potential to put allogeneic stem cell transplant largely out of business in mantle cell lymphoma, maybe not completely, but I think the data looks good enough that one could consider testing this earlier in the disease course in certain high-risk patient subsets. So we'll go ahead and start with um, diffuse large B-cell lymphoma. And... Uh... I'm going to be talking about that and then EBV-associated lymphoproliferative disorders. So first-line treatment options for newly diagnosed uh, diffuse large B-cell lymphoma, unfortunately, haven't really changed that much over the last how many years, 30 years. Our CHOP is still the most preferred regimen. Dose adjusted our EPOC, as you remember, had a, a randomized trial that showed it really was no better if you looked at all comers and um, as compared to our CHOP. So since our CHOP has less toxicity, it's still uh, the preferred regimen. Certainly in different patient populations, such as those with poor ejection fraction, you may want to look at some different options. Probably the one I use most in that circumstance is our CEOP. And first-line consolidation, um, there certainly is the, the large trial that was mostly done in Europe with lenalidomide maintenance in older patients uh, that did show some progression-free survival advantage, and that is certainly an option, uh, although it's not utilized very much in the U.S., 
Treatment options for second or later lines are divided into patients who are or are not transplant candidates. So for patients who are transplant candidates, which is certainly still considered the best option because it is a potentially curative treatment, the one that I use most often nowadays is um, the RGDP regimen. It, it works probably as well as the others and perhaps is less toxic, but there's certainly a lot of different options. Second line or subsequent therapy for uh, patients who are not transplant candidates. And in the NCCN guidelines, a polituzumab, vidotin, plus or minus benamustine, and plus or minus rituxan is uh, listed as a potentially preferred option, although there's many different options available. And then useful in certain, certain circumstances uh, could be rituximavidotin in CD30-positive disease. That's a, not very many patients, but it is possible. And then also for uh, perhaps patients who can't tolerate more aggressive options, uh, benamustine, ibrutinib, or lenalidomide with or without rituxan as options. And third line, or subsequent, certainly would be the anti-CD19 CAR T-cell. And of course, we have three FDA-approved ones. I'll go over those a little bit later. Also, uh, Lanka is approved uh, only after greater than two, failing two prior regimens. And then Selenex are also for uh, failing two or more prior regimens. So CD19-directed CAR T-cell products, we, of course, have three FDA-approved products, Axicaptogene Seleucel or Axicel, Tisagen Seleucel or Tisacel, and Lysocaptogene Merileucel or uh, Lysocel. They're all just slightly different, but all um, target CD19 have some different constructs that you can see there, and there's uh, just a slight differences between the products. They all are approved for patients with relapse refractory B-cell lymphoma who have failed two or more lines of uh, treatment for diffuse large B-cell, transformed in um, primary mediastinal lymphoma, or patients who have failed transplant or not transplant candidates. It is an aggressive treatment, and patients do need to meet criteria, as um, certainly if they get the toxicity, they can be quite ill. So... Although uh, there are some patients who would be CAR T-cell candidates when they're not autologous stem cell transplant candidates, it's um, probably similar to that criteria. There's always something new we're trying to improve upon. So there's many trials now that are currently adding to our FDA-approved CAR T-cells. For example, adding BTK inhibitors in the uh, either collections phase or in the post-CAR T-cell phase, adding IMIDs, PD-1 antibodies, et cetera, trying to reduce the relapse rate because that's still a problem, unfortunately, in about half of the patients. And there's lots of trials going on looking at those additions. There's also some trials, of course, looking at CAR T-cell earlier in the course of the disease in high-risk patients, and also trials looking at different categories, as we talked about earlier, other lymphomas or even some T-cell lymphomas with different types of targets. There are some new CAR T-cells looking at more than one target, so bicystronic CAR T-cells, and then off-the-shelf CAR T-cells, not having to manufacture that for each individual patient. Other treatment options, um, there's certainly lots of new ones to talk about, and other monoclonal antibodies. Tafacitumab, of course, is now FDA-approved with the additional lenalidomide. We'll go over some of that information today. So uh, this is a, a regimen that can be used in some patients who are perhaps not transplant or CAR T-cell candidates and um, has been shown to have really pretty good data in diffuse large B-cell lymphoma patients. Other possible treatment options for relapsed refractory diffuse large B-cell, um, different antibody conjugates. So there are a small number of these patients who are CD30 positive, and brintuximavidotin does uh, help in some of those patients, so that's an option and something to think about to test for. Polituzumavidotin is um, CD79B humanized monoclonal antibody, and it was FDA approved in 2019 in combination with bendamustine rituxan. What I usually use this for is patients perhaps similar to what we talked about earlier that are non 
CAR T-cell or non-transplant candidates or potentially as a bridging agent for CAR T-cell patients after you've done the collection and you need to buy some time until they can actually get the CAR T-cell treatment. Sometimes this is used, the polituzumab is used alone or with rituxan without the bendamustine, depending on the, the patient as well. Lanka is a CD19 humanized uh, monoclonal antibody, and this was FDA approved in April uh, 2021 for relapsed refractory diffuse large cell who had failed greater than or equal to two lines of prior therapy. We talked earlier about the bispecific antibodies, and we talked about the different subtypes. They're mostly CD20, CD3. Some of them have just a, a little bit different configurations, such as glofitinab, which has a two-to-one ratio, and um, epcaritimab has a subcutaneous administration, so there's just um, some slightly different things based upon uh, the particular agent. Mosinotuzumab is a, the bispecific anti-CD3, uh, CD20, but it's a, a fully humanized IgG1 antibody, has a, a fairly, fairly long half-life, and you can see redirects the T cells to engage and eliminate the B cells, as we're trying to do with any of these bispecific antibodies. Glofitinib, again, has a interesting bispecific with a two-to-one ratio. It also has a concomitant uh, treatment, or pre-dosing, I should say, with anti-CD20 to try to decrease the cytokine release syndrome. Odronextimab is, uh, again, a CD20, CD3 bispecific, uh, off-the-shelf for IV infusion. This has not been as studied in the uh, diffuse large cell subtype, but has high response rates in follicular lymphoma. Inepcaritimab is a little different in that it's subcutaneously administered and at least theoretically was used that way to try to decrease the cytokine release syndrome. And overall response rate, again, mostly in follicular lymphoma, less information in diffuse large cell, uh, but high response rates. Selenexor also is a third-line relapsed agent for diffuse large B-cell lymphoma. And XPO1 is a major nuclear transport uh, protein. And this is a XPO1 inhibitor. And it has a fairly high response rate, but also has fairly high GI toxicity. So it has some limited use in, in this particular patient population. Some of the key abstracts at this ASH meeting, just to draw your attention to, uh, late-breaking abstract one, the Polarex study, where POLA R-CHIP versus R-CHOP for upfront treatment of diffuse large B-cell lymphoma. Uh, abstract 91 was the lysocell versus autologous stem cell transplant as second-line therapy, and that is the TRANSFORM study. There's also two other abstracts that are the same patient population using the other types of CAR T-cell as second-line therapy, where they're randomized to transplantation. This was for early relapsing patients. And uh, one of the studies was, was very positive. One was, uh, second one was positive, and then the third one was negative. So also, abstract 739, Axacel for frontline high-risk patients in the Zuma 12 study. That was for those high-risk patients I was talking about earlier. Also, very interesting data in that really high-risk patient population. I think we'll go ahead and move on to our EBV-associated post-transplant lymphoproliferative disorder. So uh, this is pretty uncommon, and uh, perhaps many of you don't deal with this, but it's, it's a, a difficult issue. Post-transplant lymphoproliferative disorder is a heterogeneous disease that's driven by EBV. And um, of course, many of us have subclinical EBV infections as in the childhood, and it's just lying there in wait to, to cause trouble. And it persists in all of our memory B cells. It does cause autonomous proliferation of the EBV-infected cells. And when we have a patient who's immunosuppressed, that, of course, can come out and be a problem. The clinical behavior can be very aggressive and, um, unfortunately, very difficult to treat. 
different treatment options. Uh, reduced immunosuppression is the first treatment that we usually try. Now, some of the types of transplant is pretty hard to reduce their immunosuppression. If they have had a heart transplant or liver transplant, that makes it difficult to reduce immunosuppression significantly. But that's usually what we try if possible. And also rituximab is a, a single agent along with that. Chemo immunotherapy then would be the next step up. And in a rare occasion, we might use um, rituximab-vidotin for a, a Hodgkin's-like one. So often what's done is start out with rituximab alone, and then for high-risk patients, uh, may go on to ARCH-HOP, and for low-risk patients, continue the weekly rituximab. More recently, it's also been noted that CD30 is positive in some of these patients, and there are some trials of rituximab-vidotin as a target. But unfortunately, there are patients who are totally refractory to these options. And up until recently, there were very few options for these patients. There is a, a new treatment, tablocyclusil, that's an investigational off-the-shelf allogeneic EBV-specific uh, T-cell immunotherapy. And this has been studied in patients with uh, PTLD both after allogeneic transplant as well as solid organ transplant. And um, these are manufactured, as noted here, from uh, donor B cells that are transformed into EBV APCs. They are uh, co-cultured and expanded and then characterized very well and, of course, um, QA'd. And they keep different HLA antigen profiles to cover about 95% of uh, different patient populations. Selection is, uh, you can see here, by HLA restriction and then optimized uh, based upon the EBV cell targeting so PTLD, it's something that you do have to have a very high suspicion for. Sometimes patients have very nonspecific types of symptoms, and especially fever or other things that you think are infectious. Diagnosis is typically by biopsy. Also checking EBV titer in the blood is important. And typically is EBV positive, but 100% does not have to be. And there are some late PTLD that are EBV negative. Treatments would be reducing immunosuppression, depending on the type of transplant, of course, the patient had rituximab, rituximab plus chemotherapy, rituximab-vidotin, with or without rituximab. And also, more recently, hopefully we'll have some interesting ongoing studies with the EBV off-the-shelf cytotoxic CAR T-cells and anxiously looking at that. Thank you very much, Dr. Vose, Dr. Call, and Dr. Leonard. And thanks to you, the listeners, for joining us. As a reminder, to view the full program, a class in session, understanding current and future therapeutic advances across B-cell lymphomas, and to download the PDF associated with this discussion from the Clinical Care Options website, please click on the link in the show notes. As always, thanks for listening.